series, um, Your Grace in Our Weakness, I believe is grace in your weakness, and we are very excited to have you here. Thank you so much, brother, for serving us. Well, thank you guys. It's really, really good to be here. And uh, we've had Tab come and preach at our church a number of times. We've always been so blessed. And I always uh, just appreciate the opportunity to come and to meet new people and uh, to share God's word. So let's pray. Dear God, I just pray that you would come and you would uh, meet us. And as we talk about a topic that we don't... uh, one topic that we love and one topic that, that we try to avoid. We, we love grace, but we, we don't like weakness. And so, God, we, we come and just ask for your help, that, that you would open our eyes, that you would encourage us, that you would show us that your grace is sufficient and that your power is made perfect in our weakness. So, uh, God, that's got to be a work of your spirit. Uh, so we ask you to come and do that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I know for myself, when someone comes and they share a problem with you, or they share a struggle that they're having, or they share a conflict that they're in, for me, my first response is, is you want to fix it, right? You're, you're, you're thinking, you, none of us like someone coming and suffering, right? We, we kind of, we feel uncomfortable, we hear them talk, and inside, we just say, man, I can I do anything? Can I, is there anything I can do to help? Is there, and and we, we want to fix it. And, uh, and every once in a while, someone comes and shares something, and, and maybe you pray with them, or maybe you share a verse with them, or maybe you're able to do something for them, and it actually helps. And their smile comes over their face, and, and they, they feel encouraged. And that's like, you just feel so lifted up and so refreshed. And it, it's like, this is amazing. You, you, you go away excited and, and that's amazing when that happens. But the older I get and the more trouble and uh, the more struggles I hear, the more you become aware that it's not always that easy, right? Sometimes there's problems that we can't fix. And sometimes even when we think we have the right answer to a problem, there's people that don't want our advice or that are not ready to listen How many of you have ever found yourself in a situation like that? You're trying really hard to help someone. You think maybe even you know what they need, but they don't want your help. They don't want your advice. They're not ready to listen. I know for me, my first response, it's always to kind of push in, right? I I kind of throw something out there thinking maybe it'll work, and if they don't take it, then then I kind of just engage more, and I come up with another illustration or another way, or or you just kind of, you you care so much, and you want to help so badly that the first kind of rebuff doesn't stop you because you you, you just, you you feel so wanting to fix the situation, Uh, but Something I've realized, and I think probably most of you have realized, is that every once in a while, or probably even more often than that, sometimes you just, you just can't fix it. And sometimes, for all your pushing in and for all of your effort, uh, it, they're not ready, you don't have the answer, whatever it is. And, and sometimes there comes a place where where we just have to, I know for me, where I've learned, I just have to let go. I just have to admit I'm not in control. I can't fix this in my way or in my time. 
And, um, and one of the things that I realized, and, and this is something crazy that I begin to find, is the first lesson I learned was that I need to let go, right? But then as I would do that, I began to realize something, and it was, it was kind of crazy. As I would let go of control, I would feel this, it wouldn't be spoken or anything, but I would just feel this distance kind of come, or this, this, this something. Um, and it, it was almost as if the moment I stopped trying to control a situation, I found that I didn't care as much about its brokenness. The moment I raised my hands in the air and said, okay, okay, you do it your way. All of a sudden I found that I didn't care nearly as much about how it turned out as if they would have taken my advice. It sounds terrible, right? I know it sounds terrible. I, I don't, but I just, I, I, I realize that I don't know if it was a, a desire to protect myself, a desire to avoid being bitter or, or being frustrated, but, but that's just what I realized was happening inside of me. I wonder about you guys. How, how do you respond to the brokenness that you can't fix? How do you respond when Someone doesn't want to take your advice when someone won't listen, when someone doesn't want your help. Do you, do you keep on pushing until you get frustrated or, or angry? Do you throw your hands in the air and, and walk away and use your time and energy to pour into someone that maybe is more ready or someone where maybe you can see more fruit? Here's the question I'm asking. Do you know how to care without control. Do you know how to care without control? Do you, do you know how to, to care as deeply about someone who doesn't take your advice as you do about the ones who do? Do you know how to, to still long for the best for someone that doesn't want your help as you long for the best for those that do? Do you know how to care without control? Do you know how to keep loving someone that doesn't want to receive your love? The Apostle Paul did. If you look at Paul's relationship to the Corinthians, I think you see an amazing example of someone's loving broken people. Someone who was willing to care even when he wasn't in control. I mean, we all know the Corinthian church was a mess, right? I mean, they were a mess. They, they were arguing about who the best preacher was. And unfortunately for Paul, not all of them thought that he was the best preacher. They, they were, some of them were out sleeping with temple prostitutes. Others of them were, were coming early and were getting drunk on the communion wine. So by the time the poor people came to take communion, there wasn't anyone left for them. They were suing each other. They, they, it, it was a mess. But Paul loved them. And you know what? It didn't take long. It didn't take long for, for the Corinthians to do what broken people do to everyone that loves them. They break their hearts. It didn't take long for the Corinthian church to break Paul's heart. That's what we see in, in 2 Corinthians 2, 4. 
So he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears. Affliction, anguish of heart, tears. They broke his heart. But even when they didn't listen to him, even when they refused to take his advice, even when they made fun of him behind his back, Paul kept on loving them. There's this crazy verse in 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13, that shows Paul's heart for this broken people. It, it illustrates what we're talking about. He says this, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. You are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Let me, let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying, after everything you did to me, after the painful visit where I was rejected, after the tearful letter that I wrote to you, after all of your criticism of my ministry, even though I know that to this day your affections remain narrow and small towards me, I want you to know that I love you and my heart is as open to you as the day I met you. I care about you today as much as I did before you broke my heart. How do you do that? Right? Well, what is Paul's secret? What allows him to, to love people that, that break his heart? Where does he find the strength to keep his heart wide open to a people whose affections towards him are narrow? I want to know how to love like this. I, I wish that I could say this was true of me. I wish that, that this was a hallmark of my life. But the truth is, more often than not, when I look at myself, when I consider my interactions with people that don't listen, when I look at the places of my life that I'm out of control, I find something's missing. The frustration that I often feel, my impatience with people that won't listen, my desire to protect my heart from being hurt, these things alert me to the reality that something is missing. I want to know how to love people the way Paul loved the Corinthians. The more I've thought about it, the more I've tried to look into my life and figure out what it is that's missing, the more I've realized it's grace. You know what made it so hard to find? It's that grace was not missing from the message. Grace wasn't missing from my advice. Grace, when I would try to help people, it was grace that I would speak to them. It was words of grace that I would say to them. Grace was not missing from the message. That's why it was so hard for me to find. Grace was missing from the messenger. It was me. It wasn't what I was saying that lacked grace. It was the person saying it that lacked it. I lacked grace. I lacked patience for people who wouldn't listen. I was frustrated with people who refused to change. I struggled to love people I couldn't fix, and I found it very hard to care about those that, and about situations where I felt out of control. How many of you have ever found yourself 
lacking grace. How many of you can relate to being frustrated or impatient with people that won't listen? How many of you have ever given up or stopped caring about someone who refused to receive your love? How many of you have found it difficult to, to, to keep going when someone began to seem hopeless to you? How many of you have ever distanced yourself from someone because they broke your heart or pulled back from someone because they were critical of you? The thing that makes grace so hard is the people that need it the most appreciate it the least. Isn't that crazy? That's just the way it is. The people that need your grace the most appreciate it the least. You see, grace does not get the returns that we want from it. That's what makes it grace. Grace gives more than it receives. It loves more than it loved. It cares more than it's cared about. Grace is what allows us to open our hearts wide to broken people and to keep them open wide no matter how they respond. That's grace. And what we soon find out is this. Whenever you and I try to help people, try to serve people, try to fix problems, try to do ministry out of our own strength, grace is the first thing that we run out of. When you and I try to help people out of our own strength, grace is the first thing that we run out of. So where do we find more? That's the question I want to discuss this morning. Where do we find the grace to love people? that are hard to love, people who don't respond to our love? Where do we find the grace to keep our hearts wide open? You and I simply cannot give something that we haven't received, and we can't keep giving something that we're not continually receiving. So where do we get this grace? I think the best place to find it is we look at Paul, right? We just kind of Reverse, we just kind of backtrack from Paul. We say, Paul is a man who had this grace, so where did he get it? Paul is our model for grace, so where did he find it? And when we look at the Corinthian correspondence, what we find is that he found grace in weakness. He found grace in his past sinfulness. He found grace in his sufferings and in his woundedness. Unfortunately, one of the things that, that happens so often is you and I can get so focused on helping other people with their problems that we neglect our own, that we, we forget about our own. How many of you guys have done that? How many of you have allowed yourself to be so consumed in helping someone else that you allow your own problems or issues to fall by the wayside. How many of you have ever tried to use your strengths to help someone with their weaknesses? How many of you have ever urged someone to confess their sins while your own remain hidden? How many of you have given advice to someone in the middle of a battle as if you were sitting on the sidelines, as if you were a spectator? We bury our own hurts in order to help process with others through theirs. 
But that's not what Paul did. That's not what he did. Yes, the Corinthians were broken, but he never allowed their brokenness to distract him from his own. Instead, throughout the entire letter to the Corinthians, he is consistently talking about his own brokenness, his own suffering, his own affliction. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Don't you always feel when someone shares their problems with you, their sufferings with you, like you need to be strong? Like you need to just keep your own hurts aside because if you added them, if you spoke about your hurts, it would just completely crush and overwhelm that this isn't the time for that. This is their time to suffer. I need to be strong right now, strong for them while they're weak. Isn't that what we're always thinking? When someone's weak, we need to be strong. Well, why doesn't Paul think that way? Why does Paul talk to this messed up, broken church about his own suffering? his own afflictions, his own pain, his own woundedness, his own sinfulness. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 4.13. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Throughout Paul's letters, he's constantly talking about his weakness and his suffering. Do you know why? I'll tell you why. It's because that is where he found grace. Paul found the grace he needed to love others in his own weakness, in his own suffering, in his past sinfulness. You see, it was in the midst of his own weakness that Jesus came to him in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's why Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities. For when I am weak, then he is strong. Grace is found in our brokenness. It's found in our weakness. It's found in insults and hardships and calamities. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells us it's found in his past sinfulness. It's found in our, in our woundedness. Let me just summarize what Paul is saying. He's saying the grace that you and I need the most, it's found in the places we want to go the least. The grace that you and I need the most is found in the places that we want to go the least, the places, the grace that you're desperate for is found in the place that you long to avoid. It's found in weakness, in hardship, in insults, in persecutions, in affliction, in acknowledging our past sinfulness, in processing through our wounds. We don't want to go there, do we? Listen to what Pascal says. What can man do? He wants to be great and he finds that he's small. He wants to be happy and he finds that he's unhappy. He wants to be perfect but finds that he's riddled with imperfections. He wants to be the object of men's affections and esteem, but he finds that his flaws and his faults deserve only their dislike and contempt. So, so what does he do? 
Pascal says he conceives a mortal hatred of the truth that brings him down to earth and convinces him of his faults and not able to destroy this truth. He concentrates all of his efforts in concealing his faults both from himself and from others because he cannot stand being made to see them or letting anyone else see them either. That's us. That's us. Everything in us recoils from acknowledging our weakness, our sinfulness, our, our past hurts, our wounds, our scars. Our... We don't want to go there. We long for grace, but we don't want to go to the only place where it can be found. And guess what? Neither do the people you're trying to help. Neither do the people you're trying to help. You wonder why they won't take your advice. You wonder why they won't listen. Because you know that the grace they need is found in the places they don't want to go. Your kids, they don't want to go to the places where grace can be found. Your spouse, your coworkers, your friends. Your community groups, they don't want to go there. So what do we do? How do we lead people that we love to the places they don't want to go so that they can find the grace that they need? This morning I want you to know that, that we can't lead them from the sidelines. Maybe I'll say it this way. We can't use our strengths to help people with their weaknesses. We can't call others to confess their sins while we hide our own. We can't simply proclaim a message of grace in a way that lacks it. Here's, here's the image I like to think. Our people, the people you love, they will not be herded like cattle to the broken places where grace dwells. That is what we try to do, isn't it? How many times have you said, tried to, to say things like, listen, it's, it's okay. It's okay. You can just acknowledge your weakness. You can, it's okay. Just, just let go of control. How many times have you given that advice? It's okay. Just trust God. He's going to be there. How many times have you given that advice? It's okay. You can confess your sins. You can repent. You have a God who is faithful and just to forgive you. How many times have you told someone that that's what they needed to do? Well, at the same time, hiding our own sin, avoiding talking about our own weaknesses, wanting to help them process their wounds while our own remain stuffed deep down inside of us. If the people we love are ever going to make it to the broken places where grace dwells, they're going to need to be led. And you know how you get led somewhere? In order to be led, someone else is going to have to go there first. Someone else is going to have to 
be brave enough to admit and acknowledge their own weakness. Someone else is going to have to trust God enough to be able to confess their own sinfulness. Someone else is going to have to be brave enough, courageous enough to open up and talk about their own hurts and their own wounds. If the people you love are ever going to make it to the broken places where grace dwells, they're going to have to be led. Now that ought not to surprise us. That really shouldn't surprise us. Because how on earth do you think we found grace? Someone had to lead us, didn't he? You and I would have never found grace until someone else first went and admitted and acknowledged and embraced their weaknesses. We would have never found grace if someone wouldn't have come and bore in his body our sinfulness and our shame. We would have never found grace if someone wasn't willing to expose for all the world their woundedness. The Bible tells us there was someone that was willing to do this. One who was willing to go to a place he did not want to go so that he could lead us to the places where we could find grace. Paul describes this person in Philippians 2, 6-8 through 8, where he says that even though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Son of God, equal to God in every way, strong beyond your wildest imaginations, did not cling to his equality with God, but he became weak. He became weak, not so that He could find grace, but so that He could lead us to it. Not only did the Son of God become weak, but He let His Father lead Him somewhere He did not want to go because He let His Father lead Him to the cross. And there on the cross, the one who knew no sin became sin so that you and I, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 that to offer us healing, he didn't use his strength. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. We want to use our strengths to help people with their weaknesses, but the Son of God didn't even do it that way. He did not use his strength to help you and I with our weaknesses. He became weak to help us with our weaknesses. He never hid his wounds to help us process our way through ours. It's by his wounds that we can find healing.
If you want to know where to find grace, the answer is the cross. We find the grace that we need at the cross. And let me tell you something. That ought to sound crazy at first. Grace at the cross. Grace at an execution chamber. How on earth did an execution chamber, how on earth did the most shameful place in the ancient world, how on earth did that place become a place of grace? I'll tell you how. Because someone went there first. The only reason that the cross is a place of grace for you and I is because Jesus went there first. And when he went there, you know what he did? He transformed a place of judgment into a place of grace. And he did it by taking our place. On the cross, Jesus put the weakness of his humanity on full display. There he bled and died as a human being. On the cross, he acknowledged his weakness, but he did even more. There he bore our sins, enduring in his body the just penalty that we deserve for all the things that we've done wrong. There on the cross, his wounds became scars. So that ours could be healed. Isn't that crazy? The perfect Son of God came and He allowed His wounds to become scars so that ours could disappear forever. He's the only one that will have scars in heaven. Because it's through His scars that our wounds will be healed, fixed, forgotten. Everything sad becoming untrue. He didn't go to the cross to find grace for himself. He went there to become grace for you and me. And now you know what he says? He comes to us and he says, follow me. Follow me. Follow me to the place where you can find strength in your weakness. Follow me to the place where your sins can find forgiveness. Follow me to the place where you can find comfort for your wounds and hope in your suffering. So this morning, the only question that remains is, will you follow him? Will you follow him even though he is going to lead you to places you don't want to go? That's what he tells us in Hebrews 13, 12 through 13. It says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he bore. Will you follow him? He's outside the camp. Reproach is all around him. He's in a broken Suffering place. Will you follow him to that place? He's, he's there. Will you bear the reproach that he bore by confessing your sins? Will you go outside the camp by acknowledging your weakness in a world that hides it? Will you suffer with him by patiently enduring whatever God brings into your life until he sees fit to take it away? I know it's not easy, I know it's not comfortable. I know we don't like it. I know we don't want to do it. But we don't do it because we want to do it. We don't do it because it's comfortable. We don't do it because it's easy. 
We do it because that's where we find grace. You see, grace is not found in the comfort and the security of the city. You know why? Because Jesus isn't found there. He's found outside the camp. We don't follow him to be comfortable. We follow him so that where he is there, we can be also. We don't follow Jesus to get comfort. We follow Jesus to get Jesus. And when you find this grace, what you will find is that it's enough. His grace is sufficient for His power is made perfect in weakness. That was the testimony of the Apostle Paul and that has been the testimony of every person who has ever followed Jesus into the broken places of their life. This past year, more than any other year in my life, God has led me and my family to places that we did not want to go. Last April, not the, the, the one that just came, but the, uh, a year ago, April, uh, my wife and I and our two children, we moved to Uganda. We went to Uganda to pick up a three-year-old little girl named Maggie that we were going to adopt. We were so excited. We've been working on it for a couple of years. And we got there, and the next day we went and we picked Maggie up, and she was amazing. And we brought her back to our apartment in Kampala, and we were supposed to be there six weeks. And so we did the paperwork. We went to the court. We got through all of that. Things were going great. We packed for six weeks. We planned to be home in six weeks. That was our plan, but that was not God's plan. God's plan kept us in Uganda month after month after month after month after month after month until after I'd been there six months, we found out that they told us it was probably going to take two years before they were going to give Maggie a visa, and, uh, and so I came home. I came home, and I stood before our church, and I told them I loved them, loved them more than they could imagine, told them we missed them like crazy. I told them I wanted to be with them so much, but I told them, my first calling in life is to be a father, and uh, one of my kids is stuck in Uganda, and I can't be a father to her here. So, uh, so I'll be there with her, and I'll stay there with her until they let us come back, and I don't know what that means. So, Never before have I been more aware of my weakness. Never before have I hated it so much. I hated, I hated not being able to be in two places at one time. I hated having to choose between the family that I loved and the church that I loved. I hated it. I hated that because I was a human being, because I was weak, and because I couldn't do both, that I had to pick one. But, uh, but I will tell you, 
I would tell you that as much as I hated that choice, that, that there was grace there and that God's grace was sufficient. He brought me to Hebrews 13, verse 5, where he said, I will never leave you or forsake you, which reminded me that, that I'm not going through this broken place alone and I don't have to bear my weakness by myself. And what was also encouraging is he wasn't just with me in my weakness, but he was back at Kaleo Church with her in hers. And I finally had to get to the point where I realized Cleo Church was a lot better off weak with Jesus than they ever could have been strong with me. That was in September of this year. The next month in October, we got the shocking news that my daughter Maggie had more living family than, than we had been told about. We decided before we moved forward with anything that we would need to go and just see her family and just kind of familiarize ourselves with the situation and make sure that, that what we were doing was really the right thing. Inside, I'll tell you what, the, it was a Monday when we made the meeting and the meeting was that Saturday morning. I've never dreaded a meeting so much in my entire life. I just had this gnawing fear that God was going to ask me to give Maggie back. And I did not want to do that. It's hard being in America with no one that, with, with people that haven't, like, like you guys here, you, you, have, you never got to meet Maggie, so you don't know what she's like. But I'll tell you something. I, I don't, there's not words for it, but I'll just tell you, like, from the moment we picked her up, we bonded, me and her, and, uh, and she laughed, and we laughed together, and we played together. And she, I would just say, she made me so, so happy. I mean, if you can imagine living in Africa for six months when you planned to be there for six weeks, leaving the church that you cared about more than anything you could imagine, being stuck over there with all the bureaucracy and the crazy things that wouldn't let you come home, and I was happy. I was just happy because Maggie was so amazing. And she made me so happy. And so I just begged God every morning. I'd get up and I'd read my Bible and I would just journal. And I would just say, please, 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 God, don't take Maggie. I remember just writing, pick something else. Just pick something else. It can be hard. I don't care. Pick something else. You want America. You, you can have America. As much as I love America, you can have America. I will never go to back to America in my life if that's what you want. Just let me have Maggie. You want Cleo Church? I love Cleo Church, but you can have Cleo Church. Just let me have Maggie. Let me have my kid. I love her. Don't take her from me. Well, that weekend, we, uh, we went to, to the place where Maggie's mother was, and she came out, and, and we found out that she was living with her mom and her dad. She was the oldest child, and her mom and her dad were only in their 40s, and they were both alive, and she was 
about 19 or 20, or she was about 20, and she had seven brothers and sisters that were younger than her. On her side, she was carrying a little baby that looked identical to Maggie when we picked her up seven months earlier. It was Maggie's sister. She was about 11 months younger than Maggie. She had seven uncles and aunts right there in four huts right next to each other. There was 44 different people that were all related to Maggie. So it, uh, it didn't take long to know what God was calling us to do. Maggie wasn't an orphan. Maggie had a family, and they loved her. And because she wasn't an orphan, she didn't need to be adopted. So I spent the next three days with the local pastor, meeting with the family, trying to convince them that the family that God put Maggie in was more important than an education in America, and that you don't give away your kids to give them a good education. And uh, it was crazy. Her, her mom loved her like crazy. And her mom just really thought that an education in America was the best thing for Maggie, was better than than being her mom. She was so oppressed and so insecure about herself that she thought that she wasn't good enough to raise her own daughter. And it was insane to sit there and to talk to her and to see the tears in her eyes as, as you convinced her that, that God picked her as much as you don't tell her, as much as you disagreed with him that he picked her. Uh, and uh, I mean, it, it, there's nothing like it, like sitting begging somebody to do the thing that you wish to death they wouldn't do. It was the worst thing in the world. But, uh, but they said yes, and they were so happy, and Maggie was so happy, and we worked with the pastor to be able to support them so that Maggie can go to school and, and her sister can be taken care of. And I'm going to go back and visit them in September with my daughter. But... Uh, but after seven months of living in Uganda, my wife and I and my two kids, we got back on a plane and we just came home. And, uh, and there's a picture of us <laughs> that we took when we got there. And there's a picture of us that we took when we left. And they're the only pictures that we have without Maggie in them. And, uh, and if you didn't know any better, you'd think that... Uh, that we just went on a little vacation to Uganda. But, uh, but I didn't come back the same person that went to Uganda. Uh, you see, I, I, I came back broken. I got a pain inside that I can't get to go away. And... Uh, and for the first time in my life, I, I'm the person that I can't figure out how to fix. But I will say, and I will tell you, that even in this horrible situation, that our God's grace is sufficient is not sufficient to take the pain away. 
but it's sufficient to give hope, to give joy, comfort, even in the midst of all the sadness. You see, I, I learned a little something about losing a kid over those seven months. But here's the crazy thing. I knew Maggie for seven months and I left her in a safe place and she's happy. And I still can't fathom how bad I hurt. So how much more must our God have hurt to take his son that had been sitting in his lap for all eternity and to leave him hanging in suffering on a cross, bearing all of the sins of God's people. You know why he did that? He did that for you. He did that for me. He did that because he loves us. He did that because he was willing to take that kind of pain on himself to love us, to fix us, so that in the midst of our brokenness, we would never have to walk alone. That's why he did that. Can you imagine that kind of love? Can you fathom it? This is crazy. This is mind-blowing. That's the love that God has for you and I. So yes, he allows hard things into our lives. Yes, he allows stuff we don't understand and things that we don't agree with. Stuff that hurts like crazy. But the only reason he ever lets these things into our lives, the only thing, the only reason he ever takes something that you love from you, the only reason is because he wants to give you more of himself, more of his love. That's the only reason. The only reason our God would ever take anything that you loved away from you is because he longs to give you more of himself. And I will just tell you that he is simply better than the very best that this world has to offer. Better than Maggie. Better than whatever it is that you've lost. Better than whatever it is that you're going to lose. So, know for certain that the grace that Jesus bought for you and me, it's enough. It's sufficient. It's enough to enable us to be honest about our weaknesses. It's enough to cover over all of our sins so you don't have to hide them anymore. And it's enough to enable us to endure even the greatest of wounds. So I want to urge you this morning as we close, don't try to make it through this life without grace. You and I, we're never going to make it through life without loss. We can't. You can't escape suffering. You can't make everything go your way. It's not going to happen. The only question is whether you will suffer alone or whether you will suffer with your Savior, whether your losses will leave you empty or whether they will leave you with more of Him. That's the only 
question. And so this morning he comes, and he comes to each of you, and he offers you more of himself, more of his love. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing in all the universe will ever separate you from the love that I have for you. That's what he comes to offer you this morning. So, so if you've heard his voice this morning, if you've heard him calling to you, follow him. Follow him, even though he's going to lead you places you don't want to go. Follow him outside the camp. Bear the reproach that he bore. Acknowledge your weaknesses. Confess your sins. Process through your suffering, your wounds, your scars, your past. And know for certain that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to, to himself, he will himself come and he will strengthen and he will confirm and he will establish you. And he'll wipe all those tears away and everything will be new. And the scars you carry in this life will disappear forever as we worship him for all eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you. We know that there's broken places in this world. And we don't want to go to them. But we just come to say thank you that in the broken places there's also grace. So God, I pray that you would help us to let you lead us there. That we would follow you. God, give us the, the grace to acknowledge our weakness. Give us the faith to confess our sins. Give us the courage to trust you and be vulnerable about our suffering and our wounds and our weaknesses. God, we, we got pain. We got sin. We got weaknesses. Every single one of us in this room, we got all three. So don't let us, don't let us go alone. Don't. Come to us. Have mercy on us. Fill us with yourself. Don't let us suffer alone. Your grace is sufficient. Your power is made perfect in weakness. So move us to trust you. Thank you. Thank you, God, for willingly giving up your only son for us. Help us to trust you in the midst of our pain. In Jesus' name, amen. Tim, thank you so much, brother, for your faithfulness, for your vulnerability here and sharing how God's grace is sufficient in our weakness. Brother, you, you taught us that God shows us grace and we're able to lead people into grace when we've gone to weakness first. Thank you. Thank you, brother.